Hi, I'm Brother Jake. Now, there are a lot of people out there who think that Mormonism is some sort of super scary cult, but they couldn't be more wrong. Let me explain. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and today is a special episode. It's a tribute to our very own Brother Jake, who is currently in critical condition at a hospital near his home in North Carolina. Now, Jake suffered cardiac arrest last Wednesday morning, November 28th. He was working out at his home in his basement. He went upstairs to shower, and he collapsed. His wife, Erica, was there. She performed CPR until the paramedics arrived. Jake has been making gradual improvements each day, but he's still not conscious. He's still on life support, and there's a long way to go for him to make a full recovery. Still, our hopes and prayers are with him. And we will be doing many more things for Jake over the next several weeks and months to support him, his wife Erica, and their 18-month-old son. Now, if you feel moved to help and you have the means to do so, there is a GoFundMe site. It's GoFundMe forward slash GoJakeGo, all run together. Now, I'll link to that from our website and also from our Facebook page. So if you're able to do so, please show your love and appreciation to Jake and his family by making a generous donation today. We will keep you updated on his progress. We all love Jake so much. And here are just a few of the many reasons why. Okay, 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 okay. It's the I have tag. It's me. Oh, hey, you. You, you, you don't, you don't have any idea who this is, do you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't get a chance to look at the caller ID. Have, I was watching. Have you seen Scandal? It's oh. amazing. Seriously, Dad. Have, have you? How many people even have this number? Oh, oh, Lou. Of course, of course. Hey, how's it going? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Wow. You know, you can't really blame me for not knowing it was you, considering how long it's been. I think the last time we talked was when we went all Fear Factor on that one guy. Yeah, Job. That's right, Job. That was his name. That was the guy. Man, you know, you lost pretty big. Yeah, well, you know, I, I did lose the bet. I mean, there was some consolation in getting you to murder that guy's family, so, you well, know. You know, that sounds like something the loser would say. Well, you know me, Daddy's the little <laughs> loser. <laughs> Okay. Uh, uh, so, so what's up? Right, right. Well, you know, that's that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Look, you're going to be getting some some information soon, and uh, I just thought it would be best if if you heard it from me first. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, it's a bit of a doozy. So, here it is: the uh, division of temptation and human interaction is uh, declaring. Bankruptcy. D- Dad? Dad, you still there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still here. I'm just trying to... Bankruptcy? What, what, what does that even mean? Well, it, it means that we're liquidating and, and shutting down operations. We're going out of business. Shutting down? Why? 
Well, we just we took a look at our operation and decided that this was the best way to go. It just wasn't viable anymore. Viable? What do you mean not viable? What's what, what's wrong? What's going wrong? Look, look. Since this is a legal matter, I've been advised against discussing the details oh, of the process. Is this, is this about the Job guy? Are you still mad about that? No, no, it's not about Job. It's purely a business decision. You'll be getting a detailed written report because, very because soon. Because it, it sounds like you're still mad about it. And since you won't tell me why you're doing this, it looks like some sort of temper tantrum. You know what? You know what? I knew this was a bad idea. I'm out of here. Goodbye. We'll be in touch. What? Look, I'm sorry. I, I think we got off on the wrong foot. Let me just hear me out. Look. I, I don't think I've been as appreciative as I could have been with you in the past. I'll I'll level with you. I, I need you. And an important element of what I'm trying to accomplish with this whole plan of salvation thing is an opposition in, in all, all things. things right. This mortality thing, it, it, it's a test. And, and to be a test, it needs challenges. It needs alternatives. Uh, choose your own adventure kind of vibe. That's what makes it work. And that's what you provide. You're the bread and butter. Without it, this whole thing kind of, you know, falls apart. So, so what do you say we step back, we take a look at your contract, and we see if we can't, you know, work something out. All right? Dude, huh? you, ser you seriously think that you need me to provide all the opposition? Well, yeah. You're, you're the source of all temptation and evil, Lou. You're the yin to my yang. Oh, oh come on. Are you shitting me? Hey, hey, language. Uh, hey, language. Okay. Look. How, how naive can you be? Have you even thought this through? I mean, first of all, how could I possibly be the source of all temptation if you can remember me becoming, you know... Satan? Yeah. I, uh, I'm not following. What do you mean? I mean, if I'm Satan, then there wasn't anybody in the role before me, right? Right. But there were still a bunch of us that jumped ship pre-mortality. Yeah. And, and that was bad. Absolutely. So, if a third of everyone that would ever live collectively did one of the worst things you can do, and by the way, real impressive, 33% fail rate of your offspring right off the bat, what are you, a praying mantis? Anyway, if, if you lost a huge chunk of people to bad behavior before there was ever a Satan, then obviously you don't need me for opposition. It's already baked in. I mean, if, if I'm really the source of all temptation, who, who tempted me? Huh. Seriously, what do you what do you imagine that I'm doing down here? It's like you think that every little bad thing that happens is me pulling the strings of humanity, but trust me, that's that's way more work than it's worth. No thank you. I am laissez-faire all the way. So as much as you'd like to believe it was me, I didn't cause the genocide of the indigenous Americans. Wait, was that a jab or, at me? Or cause people to be born gay. Okay, that, that was definitely a jab uh, uh, at, or, at me. Or invent the internet. The uh, opposition wait, bus wait, has on. been pretty much driving itself wait, for a while hold now. On, so hold up. Back what, up. What? Back up. What? Back up. What? The internet. What about it? That. That wasn't you. <laughs> are, are Are you kidding? No way. I mean, I'm good, but I'm I'm not that good. Seriously? Swear to Scout's honor. I had nothing to do with it. Wow. But you know what? For the sake of argument, let's just say that I am the source of all opposition. The thing is, I know how the end game of this whole plan of salvation plays out, and spoiler alert, it, it doesn't end well for me. Jesus comes down, final judgment, weeping and wailing, you win, I lose. Wait, you know about that? You know about that? Of course, of course I know. You put it in the freaking scriptures like 20 times. You don't think I can read? What is your image of me anyway? How's it possible that you can call me cunning and devious and conniving every chance you get and then seriously think I'm not smart enough to read your playbook? Especially when you're paraded around the world, you're thrown in hotel rooms all over the place. Hey, hey I can't, I can't I, control the Gideons. Okay, 
you know what, forget it. That's another topic. The point is, I'm not going to spend all my time fighting a war that I know I'll lose. Plus, if I was the opposition in all things, and opposition is such an important part of your plan, like you said, then as your nemesis or whatever, isn't the only winning move not to play? Shouldn't I just take my ball and go home? Wouldn't, wouldn't that screw up your whole plan way more than fighting for the souls of men just to get my ass kicked in Armageddon? Oh. Shit. Sure. Language. What? Okay. I gotta go now. No, 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 Bye. No, 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 no. <sighs> that guy. Jesus Christ. Calling Jesus Christ. Oh, no, 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 no. Please, please. Hello, Lucifer. Hey, 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 JC. What's going on? It's, it's Jesus. Please. How about the Christ? Yes, yes. Very funny. I know, right? <sighs> Well, you know, I should get going. I heard about the bankruptcy. Wow. Already. Well, you know what they say. The father and the son are one and all that. Yeah, I bet you are. Oh, okay. What what is that supposed to mean? Nothing. Nothing. I'm just I'm just curious. Are your legs sore? Sore? From from what? What are you talking about? From uh from from jumping on the bandwagon. Oh my. Are are we re- are we really having this discussion again? I mean, I'm just saying. When when he said die, you said how dead. You couldn't. You couldn't wait. Lucifer, it was your choice to defy him like that. It's not my fault you were punished. I, I guess. I guess. I just didn't realize he was just looking for a yes man. But uh, apparently, that's what it takes to become the favorite son. I I resent that remark. I'm not just a yes man. He needs me. An important part of what he's trying to accomplish is a path to salvation, and that's what I provide. I'm the bread and butter. butter without, without me, you, the, the whole, whole thing, thing falls fall. apart. Wait, right? Wait, that that's wait, what, what are he, you doing? That's that's what he told you, right? Well, yes. Look, man. I, obviously, obviously. We don't have the best relationship, and I, I was giving a hard time before, but I swear, I swear, he just told me the exact same thing when I said that I was going into bankruptcy. Pretty, no. pretty much word for word. No, 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 he didn't. Look, look, I'm just telling you what happened. No, he did not. Yes, he did. No, no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't say that to look, you. The, you, you guys are tight. Ask him. Ask him point blank if he told me that. You know, you're not going to believe who I saw up here. Uh, I was talking to Job. Oh, you know what? We're going through a tunnel. Lucifer, Lucifer, can you hear me? uh, Lucifer, I'm going to have to... Hey, uh, Wormwood. Hey, could you get uh, Robert Kardashian on the line? we got to go over this paperwork. Okay. Oh, you got to be kidding me! Hi, Ma. Lucifer, is that you? Yeah, it's me. How are you, son? You never call anymore. I've been, I've been busy, Ma. I'm, I'm sorry. So I hear. I just got off the phone with your father and your brother. They're very upset. What's this I hear about bankruptcy? Well, I, I, I wasn't trying to upset them. I just, you know, I took a look at our numbers. The temptation division wasn't really treading water, so we thought we'd shut it down. It just wasn't making and, sense. And, and, that, and that internet. I mean, I've been taking credit for that for years. I've been telling people that that you did that. Well, I, I don't know what to tell you, Ma. I, I never told you to say that well yeah i mean well be that as it may if if you haven't been doing that if if the internet wasn't you what what have you even been doing for the past 20 years that, that 
that's my point, Ma. That's that's why I filed for bankruptcy. I'm just spinning my wheels down here anyway. Why keep up the whole facade? Well, well, listen, listen to me. Listen to me. Between between you and me, your father is. You know, he, he, he's a simple person. He means well, but he doesn't he doesn't always think everything through. But this is important to him. Important to him? What's important to me? me? You didn't let me finish. If it's important to him, it's important to me. Oh, come on, Ma. Lou? No, Ma. Lou. Ma, no, I'm not going to be the fall guy in their little hero fantasy just because you want me to. I'm my own person. All right, fine. You're right. You're your own person. Do what you want. Whatever. Okay. Here we go. I mean, sure, I did raise you, but, you know, it was an act of love. If my son's too much of a big shot prince of darkness for his own mother, then that's just just the way it is. Three eons of labor, I tear like a paper bag. But no No, matter, you're your own person. You do what you want. It's not like that. You're never quite prepared for your son to turn his back on you. What, What? What? What is with all the shouting? Fine. Fine. I'll I'll stop the bankruptcy. You will? Yeah. Well, you're your own person, so if you want to stop doing it, that's up to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank. Thanks a lot for that. Yeah. Way, way to go. Way to go, honey. Yes. Nice Wonder- job. Wonderfully done, mother. Uh, wait. What? They were on the line the whole time. I can't believe you did this. This was a total ambush. You know, we were just, we weren't trying to ambush you. We were just this, this, had, this you know, I, I, I would say that I can't like believe this, but God damn it! Whoa. Oh my goodness. I think you already have, Father. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did. Oh, there. you you don't make fun of me, you mother. Flying is the worst one because people come back from flights and they tell you their story, and it's like a horror story. It's they act like their flight was like a cattle car in the 40s in Germany. That's yeah. how bad they make it sound. Right. They're like, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. And then we get on the plane, and they made us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. We had to sit there. Oh, really, what happened next? Did you fly through the air incredibly like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle? of human flight, you non-contributing zero, that you got to fly, you're flying! It's amazing! Everybody on every plane should just constantly be going, oh my god! Wow! Yes! You're flying! You're, you're sitting in a chair in the sky. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I recently took a trip to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which includes, among other things, the town of Kitty Hawk. While there, we decided to take a short day trip to the Wright Brothers National Monument. I would have already known this if I'd really bothered to research it before, but the Wright Brothers came from incredibly humble beginnings. Born in Dayton, Ohio, neither of them ever graduated from high school. They went on to own first a printing press of their own construction, and then a bicycle shop where they repaired and later constructed bicycles of their own. As adults, their long-standing passion for flight began to take shape, and they began 
began to read the reports of other flight enthusiasts and participate in the community themselves. Using only the meager earnings and tools from their bicycle shop business, they began to create kites and gliders of their own, and due to its consistent wind, sandy soil for soft landings, and relative isolation, they chose Kitty Hawk, North Carolina as their testing ground. For a few months out of each year, they'd make the multi-day journey from Ohio to the Outer Banks to test their craft, and they started to experience some success. However, the largest hurdle still eluded them, self-powered controlled flight. They just couldn't get any of their creations to work that way. Utterly discouraged, they were on the brink of giving up when the realization came to them. All the work they had done had been based on research and conclusions drawn by other flight researchers. But the whole field of study was relatively new. Nobody really knew anything. So how could they trust the work of others? It was in this moment that, despite their lack of formal education, they distinguished themselves as true scientists. Because rather than giving up or carrying on as before, they decided to view everything reported in other attempts at flight with deep skepticism. Anything that they couldn't personally verify through experimentation wasn't going into the design. They were going to build their understanding from the ground up, brick by brick. So, with this renewed determination, they began again, and along the way, many important discoveries emerged, using their own wind tunnel, one of the first ever constructed, and a meticulous method of trial, measurement, and evaluation that calculated a mathematical formula for lift that is nearly identical to what is used in aviation software algorithms to this day. They also commissioned the first ever aluminum cast engine block to power their apparatus, as well as solidified the mathematical expression of why propellers work, which had yet to be explicitly stated despite the fact that the U.S. Navy had been using propeller technology for years. But after years of arduous labor, their backs were against the wall. Multiple mechanical setbacks had transpired while other, better financed, more educated researchers continued to close in on creating a working aircraft. And the window of favorable weather for testing that year was narrowing as winter set in. Finally, they reached a breaking point. It was now or never. So, on a blustery December afternoon in 1903, they put their little biplane on the wooden guidance track and fired up the engine. But because of the weight limitations, the engine had no radiator and therefore could only be run for a few consecutive minutes before overheating. So they were on a short timetable. Their first attempt was promising, but failed to reach the commonly accepted milestone of being airborne for 300 consecutive feet needed to count as flying. The second attempt went even further, but failed to reach the mark. Time was running out. Finally, on their third attempt, their aircraft, under its own power, left the ground, leveled off, and sailed through the air for a momentous 852 feet, ushering in the age of human flight. It's historic moment in aviation as Amelia Earhart Putnam adds another first to her long list of achievements as a pretty pioneer of the air. This airplane and this pilot are about to be the first ever to fly faster than the speed of sound in level flight. Where does it fly to? I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston. And a unique new dining service is worth writing home about.
Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. I'm going to step off the limb. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The start of a journey that would take Voyager 1 to the very edge of our solar system and beyond. Farther into the solar system than ever before. The spacecraft is now the first human-made object to have left the vicinity of our sun and entered a completely new region of space. As I stood on that runway and contemplated the profound impact on humanity of what had taken place there, all the aspects of Mormonism that I've defined myself by in one way or another for so long, like who could get married to who, and temple attendance, and home teaching, and drinking coffee, seemed so small. Even the parts beyond the rules and technicalities, the doctrines and teachings I'd once found as such poignant examples of pure objective truth started to feel so narrow and one-dimensional and obviously mired in the ideals of the culture they came from in comparison to what that first flight represented for human history. That isn't to say that one somehow negates the other. I just find the idea that Mormonism's assertions of truth are somehow more important or carry greater implications for the human race than what the Wright brothers discovered absurd. In just 100 years, the discoveries made by these two uneducated, unrelenting, brilliant Midwestern bicycle repairmen have reached a state of transcendence beyond anything Mormonism ever has. Their contribution to our collective knowledge has truly rolled out like a stone cut without hands to fill the whole earth, regardless of differences in cultural upbringing, ultimately allowing mankind to accomplish feats once considered the impossible daydreams of madmen. The Wright brothers made gods of all of us, right here in this life. And when that realization dawned on me, for the first time in many, many years, I felt like I was standing on sacred ground. In addition to the Visitor Center and Runway, the Wright Brothers National Memorial also includes a 60-foot 1930s-style granite monument on top of Kill Devil Hill, the hill from which they performed many of their experiments. The inscription around the monument's base reads, in commemoration of the conquest of the air by the brothers Wilbur and Orville Wright, conceived by genius, achieved by dauntless resolution and unconquerable faith. When I first read this, I admit I was a bit skeptical of the use of the word faith. Faith, I thought, faith had nothing to do with it. It was science. Science is about knowledge, not faith. But as I thought about it more, the words seemed more and more appropriate. What else could you call their unshakable resolve to test and measure and try again and again and again, if not the evidence of things hoped for but not seen? However, the faith of the Wright brothers was very different than the faith that led me to take Mormonism so seriously all those years. See, my faith had been sort of a top-down model. I was taught what was right or good, and faith stepped in as some sort of stopgap when the predetermined conclusion of the way things were didn't seem to match up with the evidence or my own moral compass. My faith was rooted in the source of the information I was getting, and what came from that source was true in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. I just had to have faith that eventually the reality I perceived would reconcile somehow with the incongruent ideas I was holding in my head. 
The Wright brothers' faith, on the other hand, was rooted in the method they followed for establishing truth, rather than any one specific source like I was. They viewed all assertions of how it was with a hefty dose of skepticism, and any assertion that didn't stand the test of independent empirical verification was discarded without reservation. This allowed the evidence to drive their conclusions, rather than the eventually the evidence will line up with this foregone conclusion and it'll all make sense kind of relationship that I'd had with Mormonism. Now, a lot of people seem to think that being skeptical means that you're cynical, but that wasn't true of the Wright brothers at all. Their disposition to never, ever stop wondering and doubting and questioning showed that underlying their incredulity was an ironclad thread of optimism that if they tested enough alternatives, the answer would eventually be revealed and they could step into the blinding light of discovery. With that in mind, I'd like to bear my testimony. I know that the scientific method is true. And by true, I mean that I know that applying it with exactness will unequivocally bring a greater understanding of the world around us. I believe all that scientific inquiry has revealed, all that scientific inquiry now reveals, and I believe that scientific inquiry will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the nature of the universe. I know that just as the Wright brothers unlocked the mystery of human flight and allowed mankind to break free of the force that binds us to the Earth's surface, as we remain skeptical of the answers we've been given and optimistic for the answers we can discover, we too can stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before us and reach even greater heights. And that, to me, is salvation. That is exaltation. That is the vision of humanity that I subscribe to. Not a fallen being in need of redemption, but an ascendant testament to the majesty of sentience and critical thought. Sure, we're not perfect, far from it. But I know that through continued dedication to the scientific method, many great discoveries still await us. That we can find the collective wisdom to use these discoveries to help alleviate human suffering and improve the human condition is my humble prayer. In the name of the frontal lobe, amen. Praise to the stone that was found by the prophet, for treasure hunting it first was employed, though to the very looted Joseph in far greater ploys. Hair to the spears, though that glowed like a light bright, wizards and hobbitses now seek it in vain. Magically guiding the prophet's dictation, released from the vaults, now receives worldly fame. Praise to the stone that made gold and superfluous, no record needed. The words just appeared. Nephi and Mormon, their labors were wasted. The stone wore their words when Joseph into it heared. Stone that glowed like a light bright Wizards and hobbitses Now seek it in vain Magically guiding the prophet's dictation Released from the vault Now achieve worldly fame Praise to the stone in the hand Rock solid proof 
that magic is real. Scrying we now know is powered by the priesthood. The true version of Saruman's Palantir. Hail to the seers stone that glowed like a light bright. Wizards and habits Magically guiding the prophet's dictation Released from the thought, now receives Pray to the stone, chocolate-colored Who can deny Brother Joseph's great claims? How could a prophet Hello, folks. I recently discovered your podcast while searching Mormon on Stitcher. I've also been listening to Mormon Expositor and Mormon Matters. I have enjoyed the past six episodes of Vivids on Thrones, and just today listened to the essay by Jill Searle and the subsequent discussion. As a disaffected Mormon of the past eight years and a previously active member with over 40 years of leadership experience, I have been able to relate with much of the subject matter, attitudes, and individual histories of your panel members. I was surprised to hear of one of your panelists, I cannot recall which one, today state that he is an attorney. The reason for my surprise is also the reason I am writing you today, and my observations and comments are expressed in the hope that they will be regarded with the respect that I and other listeners should have for each of you in your intent, and in the anticipation that some small improvements will help make your podcast even more interesting and helpful to your audience. The constant use of the words, like, I mean, and, uh by the panelists in virtually every sentence is not contributory to the fluent and articulate conveyance of thought, and after just a few minutes actually becomes annoying to the listener. On the other hand, and as a good comparison, Miss Searle's comments avoided those colloquialisms as she was exceptionally articulate. I was particularly disturbed by Erica's sound quality and comments. She must have been seated back from her mic or in an environment that was acoustically poor because she had tunnel voice with the background echo but most bothersome from a listener's perspective was that she had considerable difficulty completing a fluid sentence and was the panelist with the most frequent misuse of the colloquialisms mentioned above. Perhaps your review of the interview with Miss Searle and a few of those prior will bear out what I am explaining. Maybe none of this is of any concern to you, and if that's the case, I have at least expressed my thoughts. On the other hand, if the quality and professionalism of your podcast is of concern, Together with the impact it may have on your listeners, then I would invite you to give credence to my comments. Thank you for your time today, and for your efforts to provide helpful information to those transitioning through what may be difficult times in their life. Sincerely, Mr. Reed. (laughs) 
Salutations, Mr. Reed. It is my pleasure, yes indeed, to address your apt concerns and perhaps our case to plead. Since it's hard for you to hear the vulgar speech of Lower Tier, I hope this Robert Frost impression will protect your tender ear. Which brings us to your larger point, when we with filler words our speech anoint, it grates upon the listeners' minds and makes our very thoughts disjoint. We are sorry that our conversation is no wellspring of articulation, that in fleshing out our thoughts we use like and um on occasion. But give us a break, this shit ain't scripted, and some, like me, aren't super gifted at producing perfect oral points when through our thoughts on air we've sifted. I get it, man, I really do. It's bad to let those words accrue. But in reading through your message past, we infants learn something about you. It's sad for us to see, alas, that perhaps due to your long Mormon past, although you've left the church behind, you're still a condescending ass. So, in closing, we should let you know we probably will not change our flow. So if you cannot handle ums and likes, then this may not be your medium, bro. Might I suggest bird watching? Cheerio, Jake. Hi, I'm Brother Jack. Now, there are some people that think that people who leave Mormonism or ex-Mormons tend to experience strong confirmation bias when viewing things the LDS Church and its leaders do from a non-believing perspective, but that's not true at all. Let me explain. See, to become an ex-Mormon, most people eventually have to come to a point where they look at the truth claims of the Church from an empirical standpoint, which is something that Mormons are encouraged not to do. Mormons are the ones with the confirmation bias when you think about it. So when somebody who's Mormon takes a critical look at the Church, all the years of dichotomous, black and white, good and evil, evidence cherry-picking, religiously-fueled thinking completely disappears and is replaced with good, smart, totally logical and empirical, noble, smart, truth-seeking, evidence-following, smart thinking skills. And that allows us to notice things that typical people might not notice. Like this video of Henry B. Eyring during one of the prayers of a recent conference meeting, for example. Actually, let's watch it. We are grateful to Right there, right there. Did you see that? Right there, when the person giving the prayer was like, the President Thomas S. Monson, he went like, huh, like a scoffing chuckle, like, yeah, I know this religion's all fraud, and Joseph Smith was a scumbag, and Thomas S. Monson isn't really a prophet, and none of his apostles actually communicate with God, because the founding doctrines of this church are all based on lies and conjecture, and there really isn't any special priesthood authority given to the church and its leaders, and I don't really believe any of it. I just do it for the money and the opportunity to work 60-hour weeks throughout my retirement. You know, hey man, his words. I mean, sure, I guess you could argue that the fact that the audio of this particular clip has clearly been altered since there's never been a prayer in the history of conference that was given during an impromptu synthesized organ solo, which would also kind of cast doubt on the idea that this particular line in the prayer and the facial expression actually transpired concurrently at all, which undermines how rock-solid this piece of evidence may be. And yeah, I suppose that even if the prayer and gesture actually did occur in succession, the fact that A, even the most stalwart person can barely pay attention 
attention to what's being said during a weekly sacrament meeting opening prayer, and B, this was, after all, a general conference, so the invocation in the video is likely the eight or ninth public prayer that the 75-year-old Iring would have listened to just that day, and C, his eyes appear open and glazed over as if in a distractive meditative stare, all seem to point to the fact that he likely wasn't even listening to the actual prayer at all, which would also poke a hole in the facial expression as a tacit admission of unbelief theory, and granted, even if the facial expression was a reaction to the content of the prayer, it's a little hard to argue that one facial expression is strong evidence of his true opinions when you consider the dozens and dozens of times he has, on film, explicitly stated his firm belief in the church and its doctrines, but come on, I mean, you saw his expression, and it happened right when somebody giving a prayer said President Thomas S. Monson. What other conclusion could you possibly draw from a momentary, unexplained gesture other than an admittance of disbelief in the church his entire life is constructed around? Now, there are some people out there who might say, but extrapolating a single extremely strong conclusion from evidence with several alternative explanations and dozens of examples of conflicting evidence is one of the hallmarks of cognitive bias, but like I said, Mormons are the ones with cognitive bias, not us. We're the ones who use logic and empiricism to overturn our beliefs, and we did that without having an up-close insider's view of how the church works like Henry Eyring does. I mean, if he's that close to it, there's no way he doesn't know the church is a fraud, since any smart, thinking, logical, truth-seeking, evidence following smart person would have to know that, and he was a scientist. So it's not really cognitive bias to take this single ambiguous facial gesture as an indication that he doesn't believe Mormonism is true despite all the evidence against it, since we know the real answer. So you see, we're not biased at all. Everybody, this is the Jake and Randy show. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think we could do a great show too. Yeah, we don't need the rest of those people. I think we got the chops, right? <laughs> yes, we're good enough. We're smart enough, and that kind of people like us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Jake, what are we doing? Um, Since Glenn fucking flaked on us, what are we doing tonight? All right. Well, I thought that we could read through this talk and kind of um, explore. It's a great talk. And honestly, there's a lot of... Well, what talk are you talking about? Okay. All right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So this is... um, And I still never figured out how to say this guy's name. (laughs) Um, But this is from uh, the last general conference, the April 2016 general conference. There's a, a talk that was given, an address given called Refuge from the Storm. By Elder Patrick Kieran, I believe. Or Kier- I believe. What do you think? I believe it's Kieran. Kieran. Uh, All right. Awesome. So he's a British dude, and he gave a talk. He gave this amazing. I personally consider it a very genuinely inspiring and moving address about the refugee crisis in the latest conference well, address. Yeah, but let's be fair. Doesn't everything in a British accent sound smarter? It does. It does. Okay. And he's kind of got a. I don't, I don't know. I, I I don't know exactly what part of of uh, England or UK this is from, but it's kind of like a. 
It's the same accent as Daniel Radcliffe has. It's okay. kind of in the same <laughs> quadrant of the British accent lexicon. So this right? is the Hogwarts uh, accent. Okay. Right, yeah. Yes, he's <laughs> Wherever got that is yeah. on the island. <laughs> Platform nine and three quarters. Right. <laughs> well, that's in London. We know that's in London, but we don't oh, know yeah, where yeah, the you're train right, takes right. them. Right, yeah. Who knows where the Hogwarts Express goes. Right. Or the flying car. Right. All right. So the funny thing about this, Jake, was um, when I listened to um, your your parody talk, I was expecting you to skewer it. And what happened was you ended up lauding this talk, but at the same time skewering the brother and the other the the parochial Wasatch front brother. My dear brothers and sisters. Today, I'd like to speak with you about something that, as a church leader who is both operating in a European assignment and a European myself, is at the forefront of my mind, the migrant crisis arising from the instability in the Middle East and parts of Africa. I must admit I'm a bit baffled by the fact that I'm the first to be speaking about this issue specifically in any of the past few conferences, especially when considering the fact that there are no fewer than 15 men whom we all revere as the very voice of God for the whole earth, each of whom has been given multiple opportunities to address the church membership since the crisis began. And yet, not one of them has even spent a moment of the precious, undivided attention they've been given via conference to direct their loyal followers to the largest forced migration of human population since the Second World War. Indeed, one might think that such a massive display of human suffering and chaos across the globe would merit at least one address directed entirely toward the subject from these prophets, seers, and revelators in each general conference since the crisis began in 2012 and 2013, but I suppose that the impending dangers posed by the legalization of homosexual marriage and people finding faith-threatening historical information on the internet were more important issues at the time. Well. More important in the United States, anyway, since you haven't been getting many refugees here. You you know, it's, it's almost as if the highest echelons of church leadership don't really act as if Mormonism is a global church at all, but rather an American-centered institution with some less important satellite branches dispersed internationally. But that can't be true. This is the rock cut without hands to fill the whole earth, after all. It just happens to be guided by a group of white men from the Wasatch Front. Anyway, no matter. Every now and again, you just have to bite the bullet and act like the rest of the world exists. And I guess it falls to me, somebody most of you have never heard of, to direct our attention as a church away from the institutionally self-serving messages about how to make sure you all stay Mormon and convince others to become Mormon, and toward this urgent global crisis of immediate human suffering. But don't worry, I can kick enough ass for all those douchebags. Now, at this point, you're probably expecting me to dive into some sort of caricature of my original address, but I don't think I will. The reason for that is because any attempt to parody the source material of this talk would do a great disservice to what was legitimately a moving and deeply inspiring address about applying Christian principles to assist the most vulnerable of global citizens. Conference addresses that supplant the typical Mormon myopia with specific, empathetic calls to service in response to acute global needs, as well as mine did, are depressingly rare, 
and I don't want to cheapen it with some sort of half assed summary. I suggest each and every one of you go to lds.org and read or listen to it. I assure you, you won't regret it. In the name of so-called prophets of the Most High God getting schooled by a guy you've never heard of, Amen. Um, but at the same time, you just love this talk, and uh, that was unexpected because you don't we don't normally have that with conference parodies. Right. Yeah. Most of the time, the conference parodies satirize the content of the talks themselves. But to me, this con this one of the most powerful pieces of of like evidence in any particular aspect of Mormonism. So when like when I was leaving Mormonism, one of the most one of the most convincing arguments for me about the history of the Book of Mormon wasn't about the things that were book in the Book of Mormon that shouldn't be there. It was when uh, I listened to a, a, a podcast with Dr. Michael Coe on Mormon stories, who's this great, oh, great. Mesoamerican guy, and he's awesome. He's such a sweet dude, and he it, but. The most fascinating part of that interview for me was when he talked about the things that should have been in the Book of Mormon that were not. Right, because most of the time we focus on the stuff that's in the Book of Mormon that shouldn't be there. Right, but, right. But where's the chocolate beans, you know? Exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly. The chocolate beans, where's, we talked about that. I was where's like, the maize? Geez. There's no maize. <laughs> right, totally, totally. Corn, yeah, maize doesn't take an important part in, in the whole narrative. Anyway, so it was it was in that same vein. This talk showed what was missing from the focus of so many general conferences. Like this was so such an insightful and and moving address that it, that I realized, oh, we could be getting this all the time. You know, like they they get, you know they they get millions of people tuning in every six months. How is this the first time I've heard a talk about this specifically in conference? This is crazy. Yeah, and and it's it's something that really matters in like real humans, real lives. Right, <laughs> right, right. As I mentioned, like the and he talks about this. This is one of the this is the largest uh, forced migration of human population since World War II. It's an inc it's a huge, massive global crisis, the the refugee crisis because there's I mean. It's been a long time since you've had, you know, the level of upheaval in an entire region of the world that, that yeah, and, and ISIS is giving. Yeah, and conservative governor after conservative governor preemptively tried to push le legislation through um, that would prevent any refugees from coming into their state. Right. In in the United States, I mean, we're very anti. There's there's an entire there's, you know, Trump. Trump. You know, like there's, his platform. There's, Right, his platform is is based on fear, anti-immigration of any kind. I mean, so so we're not completely immune from this, but based on the absence of focus on this particular issue in the past few conferences, it just seems painfully obvious that it's it's just because the we're so America centric. Mm -hmm. This church is an American church with some with an international presence right and um uh elder cook gene r cook came, mm -hmm. came to our mission and his talk was basically to console us for getting this shitty call <laughs> you know to arizona <laughs> <laughs> and 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 guess what his message was his message was hey elders guess where 80 percent of tithing money comes from it comes from the United States. So we 
he, and he tried to sell this to us. I know now that it's bullshit, but he, what he tried to sell us was we are very careful to send the best to the United States because it's just practical. And <laughs> wow, that is an that is a fascinating argument. Jesus Christ! Yeah, well, he and he gave the talk at like a zone conference, so like there's no transcript for it. Um, I'm just going basically off memory. Right. But it, it really stuck with me because I really hated my call <laughs> being from Los Angeles, being called a Phoenix, you know. Um, right, right. But it made me feel so much better. It really it, – it, it was a very powerful and effective talk to get me through my mission. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't think – I think there's a lot of practicality in the church office building. I think they're run more like a corporation than a church. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very myopic uh, from their vantage point in the Wasatch Front. I mean, how would they not be when every single member of the Quorum of the Twelve grew up basically in the Wasatch Front? Right, except for... Uh, except for Uthdorf. Uthdorf. Yeah. Right. But that... I mean, they, they had... They, they got one... Non-American, still white though, but not one non-American. Yeah, he's, he's very white and delightsome and very handsome. Very what a silver fox! Oh God, yeah. if I was mm. anyway, yeah. <laughs> if I was twenty years older and gay, <laughs> and he was gay, but he's very Western civilization, so it's easy to kind of yeah. pull him in. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, apart from that, very. Not only just American centric, but also Wasatch Front, right? Western parochial. American. It's very parochial. Yeah. Paro- I don't know that word. You define that word for me. You um, big brain guy. <laughs> it's basically a parochial means it's from a small area with a with that area's mindset. Oh, nice. I'm gonna use that someday. Oh, it's a good word. Um, parochial. Yeah. All right. Well, don't ever say you didn't learn anything on Infants on Thrones. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's dive into this. Thing. All right. Let's go. Let's dive into this. Thing. Oh, okay. Oh, so I'll, I'll start with the scripture and then you, with this, you with a subsequent paragraph. Okay. For I was unhungered. For I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have, have done, done it unto me. Unto me. Yeah. So this is a quote from the New Testament. I don't remember exactly where it's from. Hold on. Yeah, well, there's a there's a little Matthew, there's a little fable 20. that predated that in Greek uh, um, mythology, where Zeus um, goes door to door to um, see if anyone would take him in, and he's dis- mm-hmm. he's disguised as a poor person, mm-hmm. and this old couple takes him in. And they give, even though they have nothing, they give them their cabbage and, you know, basically fed them everything they had. And he, Euros. And he told them, um, it, well, he revealed himself, I'm Zeus. And he said, I will grant you both one wish. And their wish was to never, or to, to, to both die at the same time because neither of them wanted to be without the other. They loved each other. It's like the original notebook. Yes, exactly. Oh my God. The notebook was ripped off from uh, from that fable. I'm mm-hmm. convinced. 
So anyway, when uh, one of them died, they both died, and Zeus turned him into a tree. And it's one of those trees that intertwines with each other. Mm. But uh, it's the same. I mean, it's this is not an original idea by Jesus. <laughs> okay. All right. So Doc, Doc won for copycat, but still a good sentiment. But it's a sentiment that, yeah, I totally agree with. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. There, are, there are an estimated, but you didn't do a British accent, dude. Oh, I know. I just, I hate my fake British accent so much. <laughs> it actually sounds like a 1950s, uh, right, like, Amer- like American radio announcer. Right. There are an estimated six million. <laughs> there are an estimated sixty million refugees in the refugees world today. In the world today, which means that one in every 122 humans has been forced to flee their homes. And half of these are children. It's shocking to consider the numbers involved and to reflect on what this means in each individual life. My current assignment is in Europe, where one and a quarter million of these refugees have arrived over the last year from war-torn parts of the Middle East and Africa. We see many of them coming with only the clothes they are wearing and what they can carry in one small bag. A large proportion of them are well-educated. to think of, like, pediatricians or... Uh, neurosurgeons that you know that are part of this group, dude. Right. A large, right. A large proportion of them are well educated, and all have had to abandon homes, schools, and jobs. Right. I was just thinking of there's a there's a part on the Office where Michael Scott, the American version of the Office, where Michael Scott is talking to an Indian service representative from some company, and the and the guy's like. Back home, I was a doctor. <laughs> and Michael Scott was like, I wonder what I would be back home. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> and the guy's like, you are home. This is your home. Anyway. You are not a doctor. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, so, but I can't even imagine how terrible, like, the, the, like, being a refugee, man, I can't even imagine how terrible that would be, though. Yeah, and it's it's very easy politically to say, hey, we need to protect the borders. Um, but it, uh, you know, what you're blocking out is a lot of these. When I went to USC, we had what's called the ISP, it's International Student Program, mm. and it blew me away that there were these uh, really accomplished, published um, dentists. Uh, in other countries, when they came to the United States, they were nothing unless they went through an, an ISP through uh, an accredited dental school. And it was just sad to me. Like, this guy is, like, so much smarter than me. He knows so much more than me. Right. And I have a higher status than him because I'm fucking white and I live in America. Right. And and the and the, the, the other sad thing was how much they had to pay uh, to, to get an ISP. Oh man, I bet it was crazy. Forty-five thousand dollars a year. I mean, God, that that was. Jeez. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, um, that's that's part of the of the story of these refugees. But also at the same time, you know, these are these are people that are forced out in from a bad situation, just trying to look for a better life. And and what's the conservative response? No, oh, fuck them. Turn them away. Wow. Let's, wow. let's make legislation to keep them from coming in because they might be terrorists. Right, right. 
And it's I, I, the thing is, I, I totally get why. I mean, people are afraid and react with with fear, and, I, and part of me understands why that is because I get, you know, there's there's a lot of unrest, there's a lot of unsettlement, but just the fact that there are so many that there are so many one and a quarter million in the matter of a, of a couple years, sixty million refugees in the world. Mm. That's insane. Yeah. Well, God's in charge. It all makes sense in the end. That's like a fifth of the population of the United States. Yep. It's insane. The thing is, the the thing I respect about that is, like, even when you say, "Oh, God has a plan," whatever. I mean, this guy, uh, Kier, God damn, what is Kieran. Name? Kieran. He would not appreciate me saying "God damn," it. but <laughs> he. But he's, I mean, he's saying, "Fuck that!" Like, this is, you know, it doesn't matter whether we think that everything's going to work out in the end. Like. Our focus is on there's a huge amount of suffering right now, you know, right. and this this is this is what we need to address. Um, in the there's I mean there's some self congratulatory stuff, but you know maybe they've been doing good things. The next paragraph says under the direction of the first presidency, the church working with 75 organizations in 17 European countries. These organizations range from large international institutions. Um, Two small community initiatives, government agencies, faith-based and secular charities. We're fortunate to partner with and learn from others who have been working with refugees around the world for many years. Uh, I'm just going to go on to the next paragraph. Um, As members of the church, as a people, people, we don't have to look back far in our history to reflect on times when we were refugees, violently driven from homes and farms over and over again. Last weekend, in speaking of refugees, Sister Linda Burton asked the women of the church to consider what if their story were my story. Their story is our story, not that many years, that many years yeah, ago. Yeah, so when the saints were driven out of Jackson County, Missouri, um, they were pushed over the river into Clay County. Mm. And the Clay County people were very sympathetic to the Mormons. And mm-hmm. really gave them um, time to kind of gather themselves um, and to regroup before they went on um, to far west, uh-huh. Missouri. But what if Clay County hadn't been that nice? I mean, right. would they have wanted Clay County to be like they are now <laughs> with, refu- <laughs> with refugees? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a tendency among ex-Mormons, and I include myself in this whole group, that that um, to kind of cast everything that was done by Mormons writ large in the past as being bad or whatever, or trying to find some sort of reason why they no, I'm, I'm... whatever they deserved it, they were asking for it. But the th- the thing is, they were treated unconstitutionally. They were treated with extreme prejudice. Well, they were treated with uh, with mob politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So I, I'm totally comfortable with saying that they were unfairly treated in Jackson County. Right. Maybe not so much in Nauvoo, where they created the largest army in the state. Right. The private the <laughs> private military was an issue. Yeah. But, but but in Jackson County, you know, they were just a fledgling little group, and they um you know they posed a political threat very quickly, mm-hmm. and you can kind of understand. Um, how the locals reacted, but the way that they executed it was 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 not nice. It was not fair. Yeah. It was not just. Totally, totally. And I love how he's harking back that their story is our story. We, we, you know, we've if we're gonna tap into this, rather than tapping into 
the troubled past of Mormonism as a way of reinforcing this victim, this this uh, mentality of victimization and persecution complex. He wants to use that as a source of empathy, right, for people that are hurting now. Like that's such a refreshing perspective. It is, you know? yeah, totally, absolutely, um, and and, and unique. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's uncommon to to see. That. Like most of the time, it's about how you know it's us against the world and et cetera, et cetera. But this this he's he's using it. He's using that that collective identity, not to isolate ourselves, but to say engage. We got to go out there. You know, yeah, that's awesome. Make the tent bigger. Be inclusive. Exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. So I'll I'll continue. We're on right. day. There are highly right. Yes. There are hi- there are highly charged there arguments highly in government arguments in government and across society regarding what is the definition of a refugee and what should be done to assist them. These thoughts are not intended in any way to form part of that heated discussion, nor to comment on anyone's immigration policy, but rather to focus on the people who have, had, who have been driven from their homes and their countries by wars that they had no hand Here's in Here's the starting. thing. Is like, people are, are worried about terrorists, but terrorists don't come as refugees. They are well-funded. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and they come straight through the legal process. Donald right. Trump, right? And and the weird the 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 terribly un you know ironic fact of this is, is that we are actually by being assholes to these people we're actually radicalizing more people. We're potentially creating future radicals. Ab- totally, absolutely, totally. Because if you treat them like garbage and 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 then who are they going to run to? The people that are saying, oh, look at those Westerners. Yeah, that the U.S. is the assholes to you. The U.S. Yeah. is the great Satan. Well, yeah, it's right. confirmed in my personal experience. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. All right. So my remarks are not intended in any way to form part of that heated discussion, not to comment on immigration policy, pussy, but rather <laughs> to focus on the people who have been driven from their homes and their countries by wars that they had no hand in starting. No shit, Sherlock. Yeah. Um, almost everybody who's a victim of war had no hand in it. Right. Anyway, the Savior knows, the how, savior it knows how it feels to be a refugee. He how it feels to be a refugee. He was one. He was one. Was he? <laughs> <laughs> I thought he stayed in uh, where he grew up. Pretty much. Anyway, <laughs> right. I, I'm, I'm, I'd be happy to hear you do the historical reports coming, coming up. He was born in Nazareth. Uh, you know, he died in Jerusalem. It's not that far away. I mean, he's anyway. Sure, his his country was uh, under the control of Rome, but he was not a refugee. <laughs> nice stretch. Anyway, as a <laughs> no, I can't read it. As a young child, Jesus and his family fled to Egypt. <laughs> That's such bullshit. They did not. Anyway, Jesus, according to Matthew, Jesus and his family fled to Egypt to escape the murderous swords of Herod. This is like reading a fairy tale as if it's real. Sorry. And at various points in his ministry, Jesus found himself threatened and his life in danger, ultimately submitting to the the designs of evil men who had plotted his death. Perhaps then... It is all the more remarkable to us that he repeatedly taught us to love one another, to love as he loves, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Truly, pure religion 
and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to look to the poor and the needy, and to administer to their relief that they will that they shall not suffer. Like I can't argue with that sentiment. Right. Oh, totally, totally. No. And it, it, so there's this interesting article that I that I read recently in the that was um, that I'm not sure how I feel about it because on on one hand I I don't necessarily subscribe to the uh, sentiment. But basically, there's Peggy Fletcher Stack back in um, March 8th of this year wrote an article about how there's a, an initiative, How to Teach Members the Messy Part of LDS History and Theology. Mm. Um, and it's about you know some of the efforts like the essays and why they, you know, it's why speculating on why they, uh, the church felt the need to do this. But there was a... Um, there's this quote by Kathleen Flake, who is a professor of theology at the University of Virginia, um, but also a Mormon uh, intellectual type person. Um, is, she, that, is she from the Snowflake area in Arizona? <laughs> I'm sure she is. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure that if we I'm, I'm sure that we're cousins, like is, right. if we go back two or three generations, I'm sure that we can figure out how really or how we're which sister, related which sister wife you're related yeah yeah exactly exactly um she had she had an interesting uh quote and i want to bring it up it says uh, no religion that i know of would want to turn its founding stories into history at least in history as it is understood today in a scientific sense faith is not about fact nor about fiction for that matter it's certainly not a question of sophistication at all but of religious sense so there's this sense of like it, it reminded me kind of of the end of the of like Book of Mormon musical. So spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> some spoilers about the Book of Mormon musical. So at the end of the Book of Mormon mu- musical, there's the uh, they the they repurpose the book. Of, yeah, the, right. And they say hello. You know, they say they they sing the hello song. Well, and during the well, hello song, yeah, they've taken. But they also what? like earlier in the in the musical, they say fuck. There's a whole song, fuck you, God, and they say fuck you. Right, many many times at the, at the in the finale, it's thank you God. Right, right, right. You're right. You're right. You're absolutely right, and that's related to what I'm what uh, I was getting at because they take the Book of Mormon, they repurpose it, they they mash it up into the Book of Arnold, which is a new set of you know cultural kind of hodgepodge like pop culture references <laughs> mixed with stories that are relevant to the to the uh, society in question. But it's never like – and they go out – at the very end of the play, they're going out and they're um, proselyting this book. You know, They're saying there's this most amazing book that talks about all these things that we, that we like. And there's, but it's, it, there's no but explicit it's, acknowledgement that the book is fiction, but it's kind of – it's so obviously made up that well, it's not yeah, a but they, question. They, they have a moment where the Africans, all of them except for Noxima uh-huh. – um, understand that this is just useful fiction like uh, like really you thought you thought joseph smith fucked a frog um and so i think that was that really was uh the message from uh the creators at the end was it you know this would be a lot this would be a big improvement on religion if they acknowledge that it's just useful fiction like the canterbury tells Um, right yeah the iliad the odyssey Right, which is kind of what we're getting at here. I mean, so you say, I mean, you acknowledge that like the 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 escape to Egypt to escape Herod's sword, 
you know, the, the baby genocide never happened and blah, blah, blah. But it is a useful fiction because look at the, you know, he's talking about the the outcome of the story or the moral of the story is isn't amazing that we can still love one another even when we're persecuted or whatever, you know? Yeah. So if it could be like that. It's not. But if it could be like that, it would be great. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> right. he let's reiterate. He wasn't that that paragraph is not him saying this is a useful fiction. Right. Right. Um, exactly. It's like this literally happened, and 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 if you don't believe it liter- literally happened, then you're going to be in, not in the in group. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's implicit. That's, that's implicit, and that's ultimately what you know is the result. But I'm not saying that's what he's saying. Right. Right. But I could see, like, it's almost, I guess what I'm arguing for is, like, in this example, this is an example in which it doesn't really matter if it's true or false or whatever. Because it's not about using, it's not about taking the literal truth of whatever happened and using that to form a morality. It's about using it as just an example of how we should treat other people in I don't know. I, yeah, I, and I'm totally. Uh, yeah, if you want to call Jesus a refugee, you know. What would have to change to do this? If he said, the Savior knows how it feels to be a refugee, he was one, according to the Bible, as a young child, Jesus and his family. Like, is that enough of a caveat, or would it need to be more than that? No, I mean, if, if he can use um, any story in the Bible to like affect change right to, to bigotry and xenophobia um in in you know white privileged american saints then dude go just go just do it right. run right take the ball and run but, okay got it got it but i guess i guess now that you say that it's kind of a double-edged sword because there are other bible things <laughs> yeah, right. that are used to be shitty so it's <laughs> It's yeah. kind of a mixed bag. Like the whole idea of hell is like the worst idea in the history of religion. Thanks, Je- right. thanks, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So I'm going to continue on with. Uh, it has been inspiring. That's the one. It has been inspiring. To it's witness. been inspiring to witness what church members from around the world have generously donated to help these individuals and families who have lost so much. Across Europe specifically, I've seen members of the church who have experienced a joyful awakening and enriching of the soul as they have responded to that deep, innate desire to reach out and serve those in such extreme need around them. The church has provided shelter and medical care. Stakes and missions have assembled many thousands of hygiene kits. Other stakes have provided food, water, clothing, waterproof coats, bicycles, books, backpacks, and reading glasses, more. and much so more. So this is all happening in Europe. <laughs> Europe's right, exactly, exactly. Europe's bearing the entire burden of this refugee crisis. Right, and uh, and uh, it, yeah, I mean, not not geopolitically. They're bearing most of the brunt, and it seems like it's pretty much low. I mean, we haven't really mobilized as a global church to help them out either, right? No. Um, I mean, they they haven't done nothing, so I'm not going to try. Right. I'm not going to try to be unfair. Right. But they certainly could do more with all of their assets. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm I'm, I'm just going to read the next paragraph. Is mostly the same type of thing individuals from scotland to sicily there's a nice alliteration there <laughs> what is it with alliteration man i don't know like they gotta do it though like it's <laughs> i 
I'm quite certain that that's not like the parameters, but he picked two countries that were close to the parameters. Right. So he can get his alliteration. Scotland is yeah. <laughs> have stepped into have every stepped conceivable into every conceivable role. Doctors and nurses have volunteered their services at the point where refugees arrive soaked and chilled and often traumatized from their water crossings. As refugees begin the resettlement process, local members are helping them learn the language of their host country, while others are lifting the spirits of both children and parents by providing providing toys, art supplies, music, and play. Some are taking donated yarn, knitting needles, and crochet hooks and teaching these skills to local refugees, old and young. Seasoned members of the church who have given years of service and leadership attest to the fact that ministering to these people so immediately in need has provided the richest, most fulfilling experience in their service See, so far. This is the shit that would make it fun to be a Mormon. God damn, yes. You know, like really feeling like... like this is this is what I ached for on my mission. You know, I mean, in my PPI, I said I hated my mission because we only were allowed four hours of, like, selfless service to the community right. a week. Yeah. And we had how many hours? Like 60 hours the rest of the week where we had to go and bother people about changing their religion. Right, and it would have been such a great experience if I had been able to dig wells, or you know, clothe the naked, or feed the poor, you know, those kind of things. Right. The, if the church would be more about this, like, I, I might go back. If they got well, then, if they got it, rid of the bullshit. <laughs> right, right, and that's the thing is, I feel a little bit hypocritical saying this because. I, I haven't. Do, I don't do anything right now as an next. Right, right. Like I haven't done a lot to to kind of strike out my own and seek out my own opportunities to do service, and that's something that I got to be better about. But but the church it, the church is uniquely positioned with their assets. It, it, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a great facilitate this right uh, action. Right, there's an incredible like network of resources. Right. I mean, imagine if you took every single stake temple night. Canceled all of them <laughs> and organized these instead. Right. You know, like it just seems like what could you accomplish <laughs> instead of doing things for dead people? Who gives a shit? They're fucking dead. <laughs> They're dead. Like, <laughs> and they've been baptized already 16 times. You're doing it for the 17th time. So you can feel good about your the way you spent your Friday night. I know. <laughs> When when there's people like right now in need right by you, that like I you know so I'm not I'm not trying to make myself out as a saint who does this shit on my own, right? But I'm I'm critiquing the church and its priorities, um, of you know basically, um, making sure that their saints are so indoctrinated and committed that they'll keep paying tithing rather than what religion that they profess um, is pure religion is clothing the naked and feeding the poor. You know, they're not as interested in that because it's not, it's not great for the bottom line. Right. But religion isn't supposed to be about the bottom line. 
Well, that and that's so apparent, and that's why this this talk was so shocking to me is because it it showed me the other side of the coin. So there are a lot of things that that Mormons say that I think they shouldn't say, but I don't think very much about the things that they should be saying that they're not. And like this demonstrates that because I mean, if you're going to do a word cloud about the conference, a lot of them are going to be things that reinforce people's connection to the institution. It's going to be about do your home, t- you know, it's going to be about like, make sure you're going to Sunday school, make sure you don't doubt, make sure you, you reinforce your, your testimony, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's in, so when somebody talks about this type of thing, I'm like, Oh my God, like, it's just such a shock to, see what would be like okay so let's say we took out the things that we think are kind of so insular and self-serving what would they do to replace us and like oh there's so many great candidates you know there's so many amazing causes out there all right so go ahead but uh okay so how many what i mean we're just like talking out of our ass but that's what we do all the time right <laughs> uh, what percentage of the members in ward councils the following Sunday? Because th- th- this was my experience. You know, there'd be conference, and then ward council the next Sunday was a competition to who listened to conference the best. Okay. You know, hey, you know, what, the bishop would go, he'd point to someone and say, "What was your favorite talk? What was your favorite talk?" And mm-hmm. how many of them even noticed this talk? Or how much of an impact did this talk have, do you think, to members? I think that it was real impactful in the 30 stakes in, you know, the, the 40 wards in in Western Europe. <laughs> right. I think it really <laughs> hit there. Yeah. And I think that it completely, I don't even, I would be surprised if it was a blip on the radar of people anywhere else. I imagine... In my mind's eye, um, Wasatch Front members just zoning out. The church is doing good things in the world. <laughs> Sleep. Right. <laughs> None of it really was internalized or impactful. Um, that That's my speculation anyway. Yeah. So the next paragraph is the reality of these situations. Yeah, that's the one. All right. The reality of these situations. The reality of these situations must be seen to be believed. In winter, I met, amongst many others, a pregnant woman from Syria in a refugee transit camp, desperately seeking assurance that she would not need to deliver her baby on the cold floor of the vast hall where she was housed. Back in Syria, she had been a university professor. And in Greece, I spoke with a family, still wet, shivering and frightened from their crossing in a small rubber boat from Turkey. After looking into their eyes and hearing their stories, both of the terror they had fled and of their perilous journey to find refuge. I will never like, be seriously, the same. These people fled um, high probability of death for slightly less high probability of death on a fucking dinghy yes. you can, you know, to cross a body of water. Oh, totally, yeah. If you're going to float across ocean currents... <laughs> On a life, on a rubber life raft, like how dire is yeah. your situation? Yeah. What does that say about what what you left behind? Right. Exactly. It's like, God, that is 
I mean, I, I imagine that that would be a life-changing experience. Yeah, and I, I believe him. Like, when he says that this was life-changing, I believe him. You know, the thing that I like about this is just, it's the power of the story itself. He's, I mean, he didn't say, like, she looked into my eyes and I felt <laughs> the spirit testifying to me. Like, you don't have to say that. No, he didn't. You just describe it and you say, I heard that and it changed me. And I believe him. I totally believe him. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't he didn't embellish on that paragraph at all. Yes, I think that was that was awesome. Okay, so extending care, extending and aid. care, and aid are a vast range of dedicated relief workers. Many of them volunteers. I saw in action a member of the church who, for many months, worked through the night, providing for the most immediate needs of those arriving from Turkey into Greece. Among countless other endeavors, she administered first aid to those in most critical medical need. She saw that the women and children traveling alone were cared for. She held those who had been bereaved along the way and did her best to allocate limited resources to limitless need. She, as so many like her, has been a literal ministering angel whose deeds are not forgotten by those she cared for, nor by the Lord on whose errand no, she, she was. She wasn't on the Lord's errand. She was just a human who saw, you know, humanitarian need, and and she had a, a you know a very useful skill set to be um, utilized in this situation. Um, you, you, how many of these people that she administered to are going to become Mormon? Zero. You know, very likely zero. But I think that that's I think that he kind of implicitly acknowledges that by the fact that he just said they're not forgotten. And the first person is by those that she cared for. And then the afterthought is, oh, and God. Knows this too. <laughs> right. But the most primary, I mean, the primary one and to his credit is, I mean, it's the people. That's what yes, matters. It's the people. These are amazing people. They're 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 talented and they're empathetic, and they're energetic, and they're helping. They're helping people in need now, with help right. now. Right. And like this, whoever this female doctor he's talking about, she's my fucking hero. It's totally, totally. Oh my god, this is. I mean, that's why I was so moved by this talk. Is like reading hey, about this. How do you how do you parody that? Right. Like, no, no. no. And I'm not even going to try and act like I can do some sort of summary that does, does this justice. Like, this is just a beautiful address. You got to just read it. But do you think, you know, it was uh, necessarily because she was Mormon that she rendered this service? No, it's because she's a human and she's a good person. Right. But, you know, this is the thing that drives me nuts about the church is they will try to then co-opt this as um you know mormon propaganda like look what our mormon people are doing because they are mormon because they have the gospel because they have the truth but right. she's just a good person you know and a smart person with that uh that went through the process to get the skills needed that were very useful at this time you know right you right. don't get to own this fucking salt lake yeah, I mean, I guess he had, had to tie it into church somehow. Maybe he wanted to, but it's uh, man, what a touching story. I'm not. I'm not saying. Lady. I'm not saying that he tied it into that. Right. In this talk, I'm saying that because it's in general conference, that they're they're trying to tie it in. 
Right. Yeah. And and I think and I would, yeah, I, I would not be happy with the notion that somebody listening to this, that's somebody kind of half listening to this, just like, oh, aren't we so wonderful? <laughs> Remember the church did that, yes. you know. It's like, that, no, that, a hero did that. She's amazing. Yeah, she's just a hero, okay? Right. It doesn't matter what religion or country she comes from, what gender she exactly. is even. She's just yeah. a fucking hero. Right. And I don't, the, the, here, here's how much of a hero this is. She could hate gay people. <laughs> and I wouldn't give a no, shit. Not, if I found out, oh, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it's hard to judge those those two. I don't know. There, there, there are so many Mormons that are in the East Coast and in Europe that have no problem with the gays. Oh, I'm sure I'm, I, she probably. It's hard for me to believe that she is against gay rights. <laughs> I mean, that would be. I would just say I would be shocked. Yeah, I'm sure the Turkish refugees hated gays more than she. Did. <laughs> totally, the people she was treating hated gays a lot more <laughs> than she did. God, this is weird. We're like trying to balance these like, out. Where's... Yeah, uh, Right. Okay. 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 All right. Um. Where are we? Oh, all, all, all I, who have. Given. I think it's my, is it my turn to read. Yeah. All right. All who have given of themselves, who have to, given relieve the of themselves them to relieve the suffering around them are much like the people of Alma. And thus, in their prosperous circumstances, they did not send away any who were naked, or that were hungry, or that were athirst, or that were sick, or that had not been nourished. They were liberal to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, whether out of the church or in the church, having no respect to persons as to those who wow. stood in need. Holy shit, where is That's that the from? That's of Mormon. Alma 130. Yeah. Yeah. So you know what? It's it's Maybe that's that's like the kind of... Maybe the thing we did about like hating gays versus being a nice person that comes into that comes into play here because it's like that verse versus turning people's skin black because they're <laughs> right. You know how do you weigh those two? It's it's all it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag at best. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, that's a, that's I I uh, I like that verse. Mwah. Yes, Joseph Smith. <laughs> Good job on that you, one. You dog. <laughs> you know what? A blind dog. You know. Anyway. <laughs> okay. It, my my. Uh, this is a great paragraph coming up. Right. I really I enjoyed this. We must be careful that the we news of must the be ref- careful that the news of the refugees' plight does not su- become commonplace when the initial shock wears off, and yet the wars continue and the families keep coming. Millions of refugees worldwide, whose stories no longer make the news, are still right in desperate need of help. God, that is such a that's such a great freaking quote because I mean, yeah, uh, it, it, we're it, all about the clickbait and yeah. like the most sensational like title, blah, 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 you know, ten reasons why your dog is plotting to kill you or whatever the fuck it is. It's so often that. Uh... That when something isn't in the news anymore, then the the donations dry up, which mm-hmm. um, you know uh, doesn't allow professionals willing to donate their time. Yeah, to you know like Doctors Without Borders and stuff like that. Right. There's always like a very. I I, I was reading about this recently. Actually, I think it was like on Planet Money or something where t- they talk about like basically there are enough donations in total to be able to meet the need for any given crisis. But the problem is. 
all the donations, a lot of them are in-kind donations, so they're like doctors. But, you know, it, it, doctors saying, oh, I can help out. But they all happen at one time. So if you took all the resources that were available for a given crisis and spread them out through like a year time period, then you'd be able to meet all the needs for the crisis. But since they all occur in the first three weeks, <laughs> right? It's it's like nothing, oh, this is exactly, you can't Katrina, actually. Yeah, Katrina's on the news, so like just floods of donations going right. for Katrina. Exactly, but their so suffering all, lasted. Yeah. They're still lasting, you know. <laughs> right, exactly, and so there's all these like. Yeah, I'm sure they had their, you know, I don't, I don't remember when Katrina occurred in the year. 2005. But uh, do you know what time during the year it was? It was fall 2005. All right, so, so, great. This this totally fits perfectly with what I was planning on saying first, just out of my ass. But <laughs> there were probably like, you know, a thousand Thanksgiving turkeys that spoiled. <laughs> right. That were sent down there because everyone was like, ah, I want to help you. <laughs> All but a ton of kids didn't have Christmas or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's it's or or shelter. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. <laughs> or or babies didn't have clean diapers. Like right. They, they, right. I can't remember if, I think it was um Radio Lab um and maybe it was this American Life where um they documented or they chronicled the life of um, a displaced woman who had like kids in diapers and she, you know, she would um, go into a Walmart bathroom and wash the shit out of the diaper and then put the diaper back on her kid. Cause that's all she had. She didn't have anything. Jesus. Um, <clears throat> so um, you're right. And this happens with Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know, like everybody donates turkeys and, you know, right. everyone's really uh, anxious to donate around the holidays for the for the needy. But you know what? That the needy are needy for 12 months. Right. Not for six weeks. Right. <laughs> and this is an insightful. Uh, I, I think that's a very important uh, suggestion that he made. It's like, don't let it become commonplace. Don't let it the shock value of one story just wear off and then be like, nah, yeah, because these people are still coming. Yeah, that's a. I mean, that paragraph is spot on. Awesome, awesome. Um, All right, I think we're on. If you were asking, if you're asking, what can if I? You are asking, what can I do? Let us first remember that we should not serve at the expense of families and other responsibilities, nor should we expect our leaders to organize projects for us. But as youth. Men, women, and families, we can join in this great humanitarian endeavor. In response to the invitation from the First Presidency to participate in Christ-like service to refugees worldwide, the General Presidencies of the Relief Society, Young Women, and Primary have organized a relief effort entitled, I Was a Stranger. Sister Burton introduced this to the women of the Church last weekend in the General Women's Session. There are multiple helpful ideas, resources, and suggestions for service on IWasAStranger.lds.org. Do you know anything about this? Nothing. I mean, I just clicked on the I Was a Stranger link because it was hyperlinked in there. But, uh, I mean, great. Awesome. I'm glad that there's an initiative. I'm glad they had a, you know, they made a website. That's the first step. <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. Right. I don't know what their um, mission statement is, plan is. 
but right. I think um, it's just uh, mostly just suggestions about things to do. But uh, it, it, yeah, but it's yeah, it's definitely geared toward women, though. I mean, I don't know what that. Well, because you know, women are nurturing. Right. By well, actually, one of the one of the paragraphs starts with "with our divine nature as women, <laughs> we can be." A, so, right there, you're limiting your audience a little bit. But. With our divine nature as women, that makes us equal with the authoritarian priesthood. <laughs> we have a divine nature. Don't worry, yeah. ladies. There's nothing to worry about. All right. Uh, so I don't know anything about it. I'm I'm I'm, I'm gonna carry on. Begin on your knees in prayer, then think in terms of doing something close to home in your community where you will find people who need help in adapting to their new circumstances. Their ultimate aim is their, uh, the ultimate aim is their rehabilitation to an industrious and self-reliant life. Mm. Uh, I like that. It's not, it's yeah. not about a testimony. It's right. It's like surviving. Yeah, totally, totally. I'm going to, I'm going to carry on. The, the possibilities for us to lend a hand to uh, and be a friend are endless. You might help resettle. You might help resettle refugees. Learn the host country language. Update their work skills. Practice job interviewing. You could offer to mentor a family or single mother as they transition to an unfamiliar culture, even with something as simple as accompanying them to the grocery store or the school. Some wards and stakes have existed uh, have existing trusted organizations to partner with. And according to your circumstances, you can give to the church's extraordinary humanitarian effort. So is he is he basically just talking to European saints here in this talk? Because because we're not yeah. we're not taking refugees here. Right, right, yeah. We we kind of kicked them out. So um, <laughs> I guess so. I mean, it's like start with a local thing. Well, I mean, I guess you can help with other. Uh, I don't know if you can call um, South American. Immigrants, refugees from the drug wars, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> There's a possibility because that shit's crazy. I watched Sicario and that was intense. <laughs> I think most of the people from South America that go to BYU are upper upper middle class <laughs> in their own Probably. in their own country. <laughs> and that's what got them there. But. <laughs> Um, so is there anything that someone in Lehigh, Utah can take from this? Like, what can they do? I guess just donate. Yeah, I guess according to your circumstances, you can give to the church's extraordinary humanitarian effort, maybe. Um, but it's, that's not a really great uh, you know, place to, (laughs) for humanitarian effort to, um, to be used, right? I mean, the church is, I mean, there's not even a lot of specificity in terms of like you can just give to the i mean what do you do like fast offerings and just write humanitarian effort on the memo like i don't is there a line on there that's other and then you could put humanitarian effort maybe maybe but they're not obligated to do anything that you say no because the i mean it says on the form whatever you give in here that's ours fuck you yeah i mean we're gonna use it exactly we're gonna use it how we how we're gonna use it but, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we appreciate it, but uh, it's ours now. So, but I'm I'm just wondering because like we don't have refugees, and so he must be talking um, to saints in your in, in Western Europe who are, are bearing the entire burden of this refugee crisis. Right, right. I mean, he probably is, because uh, he's probably like, ah, screw it. I mean, everything else is so American centric. I might as well. <laughs> 
But he did in such a nice way that uh, nobody's going to notice. It's, a, it's the heart. It's the uh, Hogwarts accent. <laughs> right. All right. Is it my turn or your turn? I think it's me. Okay. Additionally? Additionally, each one of us can increase our awareness of the world events that drive these families from their homes. We must take a stand against intolerance huh? and advocate respect what? and understanding across cultures and traditions. <laughs> Cult- Meeting refugee families and hearing their stories with your own ears and not from a screen or newspaper will change you. Amen. Real friendships will develop and will foster compassion and successful integration. Oh my God, this guy is a stud. <laughs> what? Like that's like like these paragraphs. I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. Oh, this is so such a departure, right? From your normal general conference uh, ethnocentric, um, you know, perspective. Yes, absolutely. It's like, go out and meet a Muslim. Maybe right. maybe you won't be so fucking afraid of them. Right. <sighs> absolutely. It's all about go. Be, in, increase your awareness. Go go learn about world events. Meet a gay person. Get to know them. Right. I mean, that's that's what it ultimately changed my heart. Right. You know, from 2000, marching door to door, trying to get people to vote for Prop 22 to Prop 8, like destroying my testimony. It was meeting gay people right. and admiring them. Like, they, the, the, you know, this guy's gay, but God, he's a stud. And he's my mentor, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, meeting the—I mean, in him saying meeting refugee families and hearing the stories with your own ears will change you. Yeah, there's a big difference when you're like face to face with a person and you hear their yeah. story than when you read it on some clickbait. I mean, that—that's—I think maybe that changes kind of what he's talking about between reading headlines and not letting it fade from your mind. It's like when you know somebody that has gone through that. Right. I mean, it changed. Tom, Tom has gone. I don't want to put words in Tom's mouth, but I think, I don't think he'll have a problem with this. Um, you know, his empathy for gay people was driven by meeting people. Same, same type of thing. It was like, he met people, he talked to them, he <laughs> derived empathy from them. And he's like, and, how can I, and he's gotten to the point where he's marrying them. <laughs> no, he's marrying them. Exactly. <laughs> No, he's burning the barn of society. <laughs> uh, but I just, I love this, like this last sentence. Right? Real friendships will develop and will foster compassion and successful integration. <laughs> that's right. the key word, you know. That's the anti-ethnocentric bullshit, you know, that we've been fed. That's the big tent. Yeah is now they're part of us and we're part of them. Yeah. We're all one now. See? See? You see why I love this talk so <laughs> yeah. much? I'm so glad you picked it. <laughs> oh, it's freaking great. Cuz you know, uh, like with our conference parodies, we you know, we kind of beat a dead horse, you know, we make fun of the same things. But that's why I loved your talk. It was like so refreshing. It was like, "Hey, um this guy actually gave a great talk and fuck you guys." And your like myopic perspective from the Wasatch Front, you know? Yeah, I mean that's why I felt like this whole talk was just. I mean I don't think that he was trying to stick it to him, but no, it's just so obvious. I mean this just the the 
this just so clearly blows everything else out of the water that it's like <laughs> this is the level of discourse how can I, that right, should, how, should uh, abound in conference right i mean this is the reason that you know if you uh, conferences are more or less i mean in most cases they're just kind of a write off yeah, because like like you said in the intro, as Elder Uchtdorf, who sounds more and more like Schwarzenegger to me. I know, I, I know. I, it's I getting... keep waiting for him to say, "Get through the chopper." <laughs> every every conference, I lower the voice distortion more, and I get more <laughs> and more like this. this. And so it's, it's like I a like distortion, food. right? It's like a copy of a copy of a copy. So it's I'm not doing great on that front. <laughs> But your your intro, um, oh shit! What was the point I was gonna make about your intro? <laughs> oh, if you took one and you put them all in a bag, yeah, and took yeah. Them out, like so, conference this this conference outside of this talk, conference is just you know just the big bag of Mormon ideas mixed around and then just pull out of the hat. What you know? What are you gonna talk about? And uh, you know, it's just the same old shit. It's, I mean, that's why right. the joke that it's so boring is so true. Right. Um, it's the same shit. It's like how you know, like Len said in his monster talk. What you know? What a, you know? I'm gonna tell you for the ten thousandth time, <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably not far off. Yeah. <laughs> the church yeah. is true. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and uh, so. Yeah, so this talk is just like a splash of, you know, cold water on your face when you're, I'm sure when, how did you even come across this talk? Well, because I, so um, when we were looking into doing the conference parody for this conference, I was like, shit, I haven't seen any chatter at all. Yeah. You know, I've seen very little about it. So like I, I was trying to Google some stuff and I, and I actually went on, actually I found out about it through uh, John Dillon's Facebook. So he had a thing that was like, you know, what are some people's highlights of conference? And I was just reading through the comments there. And most of them I was like, eh, blah, blah, blah. And then I, in, I but this kept coming up, Elder uh, Kieran. Um, <laughs> I got it this time. <laughs> it just kept coming up. And I was like, I got to look at this thing. Because I saw it, uh, I, I, it came up two or three times. Uh, and then I looked at it and, and was just blown away by it. But uh, most of it was because Everything else was so unremarkable. Yeah, you know how I picked my iring talk because it was unremarkable. <laughs> no, because I, I was like, okay, conference, uh, Saturday morning. I had the I had the day off, and I turned on conference, and he was the opening talk of Saturday morning, and the guy could barely keep his composure. Really? That talk. So he was like coming apart. Yeah, I he was listen coming to apart, and um, and I was like, well, I'm. I, I know what I'm doing, and I stopped. You know, I couldn't take it much longer than, than half his talk. <laughs> but I was like, "Yeah, that's my talk." Um, but yeah, it was really like that's that's why I loved your intro so much. Was it was like we're gonna lay low. <laughs> well, the thing is, I actually pulled. I made the intro, and I'm sorry, we're we're just kind of jerking, stroking each other's balls or whatever at this point. But I made the intro. Because of your talk, I listened to your talk and it was like after you know you were like after yet another unremarkable conference, blah blah blah. And I was like, this was an unremarkable conference. I mean, nobody's saying anything about it. 
<laughs> so like it was based on that that I went back and made the intro afterward. Yeah, the, um, the intro is the great though because the last six months has been a hellstorm uh, totally. for the PR department. I mean, what, well, in America, in America, well, that that's all that matters. The, well, exactly. It's because there's it's been a PR nightmare in America. In the rest of the world, there's a fucking global humanitarian crisis going on. <laughs> Are you kidding me? We're not going to hear about that except for one British dude we've never heard of. <laughs> yeah, who is this guy? It's ridiculous. Do you know anything about him? I don't know anything. I I don't know anything about him. I've never researched him before. All right, so I guess it's your. Is it your turn? No, no, no. no. I read the. Uh... All right, so I'm going to start with the Lord has instructed. Yeah, that's it. The Lord has instructed us that the stakes of Zion are to be a defense and a refuge from the storm. We have found refuge. Let us come out from our safe places and share with them from our abundance, hope for a brighter future, faith in God and in our fellow man, and love that sees beyond cultural and ideological differences to the glorious truth that we are all children of our Father in heaven. You know what? Just substitute we are all children of their Heavenly Father with we are all part of the human family. Exactly. And that's that paragraph is... Mwah. Right? For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love. That's awesome! God, Boom. that is so good! God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power I know, and of love. But everything's about Fear in the Republican Party, i.e. the Mormon Church. Yeah. No, it's totally true. I mean, it's very reactionary. It's totally fear-based. There's a lot of that. A lot of it. Obama is the Antichrist. You know. uh, The The internet is bad. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Like, this is the most evil time in the history of humanity when really, if you you, uh, go by Steven Pinker's extensive research... You're less likely to die a violent death now by uh, orders of magnitude from like just 300 years ago. Right. Yeah, totally. We're way less likely to be miserable and die. Unless you're black and you're from the projects. Well, you know, but that's been gone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to hand wave that away. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> All right. This is my very favorite paragraph of this entire talk, of which there have been many great paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Being a refugee, Being may, a refugee be a may be a defining moment in the lives of those who are refugees, but being a refugee does not define them. Like countless thousands before them, this will be a period, we hope a short period in their lives. Some of them will go on to be Nobel laureates, public servants, physicians, scientists, musicians, artists, religious leaders, and, and contributors in other fields. Indeed, many of them were these things before they lost everything. This moment does not define them, but our response will help define God, I us. I think I'm going to cry. All right? Like, I, 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 I was really close to crying right there. Because oh. that was an incredible paragraph. How many how many Jewish refugees came to the United States because of Nazi Germany and helped us? Right, I, and I can, becoming prominent. I can name one. You know, Einstein. <laughs> right, That's, he's a guy. Right, no, I, I think he was a part. A few things. <laughs> uh, or is it pronounced Einstein? <laughs> Einstein. 
But, but oh god, but yeah, yes. Th- like these are people that were, you know, they were kind of a big. A lot of them were kind of a big deal where they were. Right. But they're refugees because of extenuating circumstances by you know militant um, radicals that mm. took over the government. Right. How many how many fucking brilliant Jews were there in Germany? Not just in science, but in art, in performance. Right. Um, you know, and then they, all of them, like those who weren't killed in the concentration camps, the ones who escaped were refugees. And, exactly. And we had 99 straight years of of at least one Jewish person winning a Nobel Prize in something until recently. 99 straight years. There are less Jewish people in the world than there are um, proclaimed Mormons. You know, I mean, I'm just going by the yeah. numbers that they. Right. But I mean, I'm sure there's more Jewish people, but it's roughly the same, you know. And. You know, what if we treated these refugees like a lot like Donald Trump would want to? Right. Yeah, exactly. What if what if we tr- said, oh, no, there's no place for you. You're not like us. You're you're other. I mean, yeah, exactly. We're, we're, we're approaching things through the xenophobic lens of, of exclusion and, and fear. It's just God, that, that, that makes sense. Oh my this God. moment does not define them. But our response will help define us. That's like personal accountability that you rarely see in conference. God, that is such. Oh, that is a great, great sentence. I think we're both orgasming. I know. I'm just like, oh, like who thought that we would come together? You and I would come together on a conference talk like this and see how great it is. Oh, that we would be like so blown away. But this is awesome. And then, and then he closes it out. Unfortunately, fucking. I mean, yeah, but it, I mean, it's a Bible verse. But on the other hand, chiasmus, verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Boom! I mean, what a god! What a what a mic drop! Yeah. This entire talk was. That's great. That's a great. One. On the entire on conference in general. <laughs> You, I feel like like monsters should have got up and just be like, "How can I follow that?" I, <laughs> I wiggled my ears. I wiggled my ears. The end. <laughs> Conference is over now. You've heard the best thing. Like yeah. So this this talk after you know this is the first time I read it mm. um, is this is the meat um, that they always promise. But what they always deliver is, you know, pablum. Right. You know, put put the, the banana and the milk in a blender and then feed it to the masses. Right. But this this is a meaty talk and it's a, uh, a relevant talk and um, it just hits right to the core of, um, you know, what <clears throat> the church proclaims to be. Exactly. And what it can be, and the people that are so optimistic and rosy-eyed about the church, and I'm so cynical about it, this is what they see. Like, in a lot of case, in a lot of cases, like, I when when I see, this talk makes me understand why they're so excited about it, or why they're still invested in it. 
even though I don't think that this really represents much of anything, I think this was an anomaly. Yeah, and and how many of the members actually like um, internalized and comprehended what was said? Right, very few, very few. I'm sure. Mostly in the East Coast and in Europe. <laughs> but this, but like it can, it could be this though. Yeah. Like this is the guy. This was in conference. Yeah, but he's a seventy and he's a foreigner. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying that like it could be this good. Like I, I like when people are optimistic about oh the church can change it can be better. I'm like oh, what, what what would it become? It would become this talk. <laughs> this talk. <laughs> here is your here is your blueprint. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, this has been. I don't. I. I was just. I'm. I'm just so happy that you could. You could read this with me and understand why I was so enamored with this talk in the first place. Were you skeptical that I wouldn't be? No, I just wanted. Uh, no, no, not at all. Because you're human. This is an incredibly humanist. Put on a little lipstick now and then. Put on a little lipstick now and then. Put on a little lipstick now and then. I don't know why we make this whole process so hard. Put on a little lipstick now and then. Put on a little lipstick now and then. Put on a little lipstick now and then. I don't know why we make this whole process so hard. I did simply say to your brethren, wake up, open your eyes, look around a little. Put on a little lipstick now and then. Put on a little lipstick now and then. Put on a little lipstick now and then. I'm not an idiot. This man doesn't seem like a dodo. Because we're not a cult. I'm not an idiot. I'm not an idiot. Because we're not a cult. Because we're not a cult. I'm not an idiot. I'm not an idiot. Because we're not a cult. This man doesn't seem like a dodo. I just simply say to you brethren, wake up, open your eyes, look around a little. I looked squarely at him, certain I had his attention, and then I wiggled my ears. I wiggled my ears. I wiggled my ears. And then I wiggled my ears. Put on a little lipstick now and then. This man doesn't seem like a dodo. Put on a little lipstick now and then. I wiggled my ears. Some suppose that they were preset and cannot overcome what they feel are inborn tendencies toward the impure and the unnatural. Not so. Why would our Heavenly Father do that to anyone? First, I want to change the question. Why would our Heavenly Father do that to anyone? First, I want to change the question. I looked squarely at him. Certain I had his attention. And then... Taste of a pickle. An occasional dip in the brine and distinctive taste of a pickle. I'd simply say to you, brethren, put on a little lipstick now and then. Why would our Heavenly Father do that to anyone? Put on a little lipstick now and then. 
an occasional dip in the brine and distinctive taste of a pickle. Steady, sustained, and complete. Steady, sustained, and complete. Steady, sustained, and complete in the brine. This man doesn't seem like a dodo. There are no homosexual members of the church. I don't know why we make this whole process so hard. And distinctive taste of a pickle. There are no homosexual members of the church. An occasional dip in the brine. This man doesn't seem like a dodo. Steady, sustained, and complete immersion. Put on a little lipstick now and then. Put on a little lipstick and now and then. And distinctive taste Put of on a little pickle. lipstick now and then. And distinctive taste of a pickle. And then... Hi, this is Hillary. Matthew Ryan. Carol. Dutchley. And I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. If you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Brother Jake. Now there are a lot of people out there who think the Mormonism is some sort of super scary cult, but they couldn't be more wrong. But first of all, let's talk about the word cult. According to the dictionary definition, the cult is a system of religious veneration and devotion directed toward a particular figure or object. So according to that definition, every freaking religion is a cult. So you know, no big deal. Problem solved. Very more popular definition of the word cult people might be using when they say Mormonism is a cult. It could be something like the way that it is Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.